You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. If you'd like to follow along with our PowerPoint notes, you can access those through our Google Drive folder, um, as those are made available every week. And you can always reference back to previous sermon notes as well. Uh, through that avenue. We come to Genesis chapter 38, and the last couple of weeks we've really been focusing in on Joseph and the conflict with his brothers, and we saw last week the culmination of that conflict as it escalates to the point where the brothers are ready to kill Joseph and ready to basically rid themselves of his presence. Um, We saw last week a proactive God versus a reactive God, meaning that while all this is transpiring with the brothers, this is ultimately God's plan working itself out that God is using these evil intents, God is using these evil actions for his purposes rather than reacting to them. We saw specifically that all of life's events, including the evil at work around us, should be seen as God's proactive working for his glory and our good. A couple of points we made last week. We said that we don't, when we don't know where we're going, God is still directing our paths. That is, Joseph stands in that field Uh, in Shechem, trying to find his brothers, has no idea where they are, has no idea where to go to find them. Uh, His path sovereignly crosses uh, with a servant who who knows where they went and is able to direct him. And we said that there may be times in our life where we're completely clueless as to the next steps that we're supposed to take. And I described to you a time in my life where where I was really uh, just confused and, and completely Uh, at a loss as to what to do next with my life, and and God came through and directed my path, and we can trust that God does the same for all of us, that when we don't know where we're going, God is still directing our path, and God directs Joseph to his brothers. We said also last week, when others are indifferent to our suffering, God is sympathetic to our hurt. We we, we looked ahead into Genesis and see that the brothers heard the, the screaming and the pleading of Joseph for them not to follow through with this evil intent. Uh, to let him out of the well, to not sell him into slavery. And those cries and pleas fell upon deaf ears, and the brothers see their, their sin coming back on them, basically, towards the end of their life. And, and they're saying, this is due to the fact that we ignored uh, Joseph and his pleas for our help. And we saw that this all took place in Dothan, and um, we looked ahead as well and saw that God came through for Elisha in Dothan, that Uh, God opened Elisha's eyes so that he could see the armies of God around him. And while he was surrounded by evil armies, he made the the statement that those that are for us are greater and and far outnumber those that are against us. And that's a a promise that we can cling to as believers, that God is always working for us as his children. Anybody that's trying to work against us pales in comparison to those that are working for us. God and his forces um, certainly uh, are more capable of accomplishing good uh, then the enemy is accomplishing evil in our life. Um, we said last week as well that when evil is doing its worst, God is accomplishing his best. And so our application from last week, I must choose to see all of life as God working for me rather than questioning why God is against me. You'll remember we said that Jacob later in his life talks about the fact that all this stuff is piling up against him. Whereas Joseph seems to be able to interpret the events as God working for him. And he even tries to teach that to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God was working for our family versus against me as an individual. And so that's certainly truth that we can cling to as believers today. Before we continue in our study of Joseph and his life, 
Um, Moses chooses to interject a, um, a story in chapter 38 that, again, is, as we said earlier, kind of riddled with scandal. Um, it's got some uh, adult material in it. Um, and, and it's a passage that you look at and you say, why was it necessary for this to be included? Because there's a lot of things that would have happened in this family's life over the 20 plus years where Joseph is separated from them. A lot of different events and stories and accounts that could have been included here in chapter 38. God sees fit for whatever reason to include this. And so I challenged you to read through it this morning and to dialogue a little bit as to why would, what's the, why would God include this? What's the purpose of this passage? Um, Ryan Tipton, my cousin, was at, uh, we are at Trinity on Monday and he was asking me how my new study schedule was going this week and I was telling him I was up early Monday morning reading through this passage and, and told him which passage I was in. And, you know, and I said, I'm, I'm working through the, 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 the purpose and the application of this story about Onan and, and why this is here, right? Like it's not, it's not a passage you're going to come across really in my utmost for its highest as it's drawing you on daily devotional reflections. It's not going to really reference this story. Um, again, you've got father-in-law and, 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 a, and a woman here that are together and, and just a lot of stuff that, that leave you kind of puzzled as to why this was necessary to include it. And I hope that we can work through uh, some of those reasons today. And so basically what we're going to do uh, for this chapter, we're going to cover the whole chapter today, basically going to try to show you what the chapter is saying and what it's, what it's revealing to us, and then at the end come back with why I believe this chapter is included for us in this story. All right, so our summary sentence for this morning, the longer we fail to deal with our sin, the more we fall into additional sin but we serve a God who is capable of rescuing us from the greatest of sins. The longer we fail to deal with our sin, the more we fall into additional sin. But we serve a God who is capable of rescuing us from the greatest of sins. For our kids, unconfessed sin usually leads to more sin, but God can forgive us from all sin. This is Judah. This is Judah who is the one who was instrumental in, in concocting the final plan for what to do with Joseph, all right? This is Judah who, who was instrumental in Joseph being sent to Egypt. This is Judah who has bitterness towards his brother, hatred towards his brother, maybe helped fuel that in some of the other younger brothers. This is Judah who failed to deal with his bitterness, failed to reconcile like we've been talking about over previous weeks, allowed that sin to fester. And we said that when you don't fail with sin or when you don't deal with sin, you fall into further sin. So when you fail to, to deal with your sin and you fail to reconcile, um, it, it opens the door for greater sins. Um, and we see that further now in Judah's life, that his bitterness led to murderous discussion, eventually leads him to, to abusing his brother and, and kicking his brother out and selling his brother away, uh, a heinous crime, something that we would all blush at if that was something that, that we were guilty of or a family member was guilty of. I mean, it's, it's a crime what he's done here. But all it does is open up his life to further sin. Um, and we see that in Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. It says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brother's and turned aside to a certain Adalomite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. 
Judah was in Shazib when she bore him. Judah essentially separates himself from his family after the events of Joseph. Separates himself, gets entwined with the Canaanite culture, befriends Canaanites, seeks them for intimacy, and it ends up leading to um, some poor decisions, some poor character decisions by him in how some of this plays out. All right, Um, before we get into the actual narrative here in Genesis chapter 38, a couple of introductory notes that I want to pass along your way. If you look at chapter 38 and chapter 39 together, they contrast Judah and Joseph's character. So this week's sermon title, Judah Acting Out of Convenience, um, we're going to see Judah's character come to light here. We're going to see a little bit more about who Judah is and how he operates and how he responds to circumstances. It's real similar, though, to Joseph's situation in chapter 39. Both of them are presented with the opportunities to to be with women that are not their wives. Both of them respond differently. Both of them are responding to circumstances differently. Their integrity is put to the test, and we see that play out differently in both of their lives. One is highly immoral, and one is highly chaste. And both have clothes that are left behind that identify their actions right? Joseph is going to have his clothes left behind because Potiphar's wife takes them and tries to say, hey, he was here and he did something. But Joseph was not guilty, but he's punished for it, right? Judah willingly leaves his stuff behind, right? And when when he's ready to bring judgment upon Tamar, Tamar says, you were here, you're the one that did this, right? And he doesn't get punished for it, right? Like there's no punishment. He's ready to burn her and, and do away with her, then it's confirmed that, no, you're actually the guilty party more than she is, and he just says, oh, you know what, you're better than me, and there's no real judgment. So um, both of them have their clothes left behind, identifying their roles in the situation. The issue of childbearing continues for the promised line. The issue of, a, of, a, of an heir. So we've seen it with uh, Abraham and Sarah, their inability to have children. We've seen it with Isaac and Rebekah and their inability to have children. Um, we, we now see it play out. We've seen it play out with Joseph where Rachel couldn't have kids. We now see it play out in the life of Judah, who's going to be the next in line. Um, we see it play out where he's got kids and they're not having kids themselves. And they're, they're, they're dying from their sin and their wickedness. And basically, Judah's gonna keep his last son separated from Tamar and there's not gonna be any more children to be had. Uh, if Tamar doesn't step in and do something about it. And so childbearing continues to be an issue for the promised line. Um, It certainly shows, once again, that God controls the womb Um, because Tamar, according to the text, Tamar and Judah are together one time. One time they're together, and she bears twins to him. Um, So this isn't an ongoing prayer struggle for Tamar to get pregnant. I mean, it's one time. It's a one-time event. And, and she, bears, she bears twins. Uh, she bears twins to Judah. And so this, again, shows God controls the womb because God could have prevented that from happening. If God wasn't okay in allowing that to happen, he could have prevented that. Um, but God sees to bring life together in the midst of the sinful act. Um, the pattern of the older serving the younger continues. Um, kind of a weird additional detail there about the hand coming out. Um, I've, I've yet to really watch the births of my children. Um, I've been there. I'm present. I see the after aspect. I'm not interested in seeing the whole process. Um, but I've, I've, never, I've never heard 
of hands coming out prior to heads. I would think it at least indicates there's some problems there uh, leading up to the birth of these kids. But um, you have one sticking his hand out, and you think he's going to be the first one out, and he ends up not being the first one out as his hand comes back in, and the other is able to pull ahead. Kind of similar to what you see with uh, Jacob and Esau, right? The, The one pulling after the other as Jacob comes out holding onto the heel of Esau. But the pattern of the older serving the younger continues here. This is also the first mention in, in the Bible um, of an individual being put to death for his actions by God. Um, and so we talk a lot about first in the book of Genesis. This is the first mention of someone individually. Now, we know that God judged the whole world for its sin with the flood. This is the first individual that we have being put to death specifically for his sinful acts. Um, not that it's the first time it happened, but it's the first time that it's mentioned in scripture. It's also the first mention of the uh, Liverite law. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, anybody else got a better pronunciation for that? L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Um, not to be confused with the tribe of Levi and the priest. This law is tied to um, the situation when you have a man who dies without children. It's his brother's responsibility to step in and to provide an heir for him. So Basically, the law would read as, if the husband died without an heir, the brother marries the widow and produces an heir for him. The son would not belong to the brother. The son would remain the legal heir of his dead father and be given the name of the dead father. This protects the dead man's stuff. It stays in his family as this child would now become the heir, and it protects the widow. Um, It ensures a provider for her. This is the law that we see playing itself out in the story of Ruth. When Ruth's husband dies and Boaz assumes responsibility, you'll remember he wasn't the first one that had the responsibility to care for Ruth. There was another individual who declined that responsibility. Boaz steps in, marries her. Um, They have children together. um, and, and, And that's how it would work in both the Israelite culture and in the Canaanite culture. This was a common law practice. You can Read more about it if you want to in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Um, It's also referenced in Matthew 22. You'll remember when the Pharisees come and want to challenge Jesus about the um, who's married to who in heaven if you have an individual who dies and then the brother takes over for her and dies and the brother takes over for him and dies. Who, Who does she belong to in heaven? That's the law that's being referenced in Matthew chapter 22. The idea that the brother has a responsibility to provide for her and for his dead brother Uh, by producing an heir for his brother because his brother failed uh, or didn't have time to do so. So this is a little bit of introduction to uh, the setting for this chapter. So as we jump into the text, uh, the first thing we come to is that Judah fails in friendship. In the area of friendship for our kids, Judah picked the wrong friends. This is a failure on Judah's part. Um... It reminds me, as I was studying, of the passage in 2 Corinthians, uh, verse 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Right? Paul talks to the Corinthians, who are certainly in the midst of a, an evil culture, and talks to them about the dangers of being unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
And I think this passage can be applied to both the intimacy that comes with being husband and wife, which naturally should also be applied to the dating relationship of unbelievers and believers dating together. But I think it can also be applied to the the intimate friendships that we enjoy, that there's certainly dangers in me closely associating with people who are walking in a different direction spiritually than me, that if I befriend people, if I seek to spend the majority of my time and I share interests with individuals that don't share the most important thing about me, then I'm putting myself into danger. And that's exactly what happens with Judah. Judah is a, an heir to the Abrahamic covenant. He's an heir to the promises of God. And yet he makes a decision after Joseph is sold. It says that he went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adalamite whose name was Hira. And it's through that relationship that he is uh, able to encounter this uh, daughter of Shua who becomes his wife. Judah fails in his choice of friendships. First off, he starts by turning to a Canaanite for influence. This man, Hira, uh, we've already read through the text this morning. Hira is an individual who starts off as an acquaintance. Uh, He meets them. They strike up a commonality in their conversation, and they decide to kind of pursue that friendship. He moves from acquaintance to ultimately being an associate. We see after Judah's wife dies and he mourns and grieves and, and is then comforted and kind of coming out of that, that he, he sets off once again with Hira to go shear sheep and they're, they're, they're seemingly bonded together in business. Um, and so he moves from acquaintance to associate. And then as the story continues to play out with the prostitute, it's Hira who's supposed to go pay the, the price to her. And he becomes an accomplice in the whole situation. And so Hira is certainly an important figure in Judah's life. He's becoming a very important influence for him. A close friendship is is, uh, forming between Judah and a Canaanite. A Canaanite who's part of the cursed people, part of the people that are going to be expelled from the land by the children of Israel down the road. When it says that he turned aside to a certain Adalamite, that phrase there in the original Hebrew uh, is most commonly used for deviating from the good path. So even as Moses writes, it's not just that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn over here and be friends with this guy. Moses tries to, in his writing, communicate this was not a good choice. This was not the right thing to do. This was a, a poor decision. This was a failure on Judah's part in the area of friendship as he becomes bonded uh, to darkness, bonded to an unbeliever, and begins to listen to Hira as a point of influence in his life. I'm putting my notes too. There's a great danger when we separate and operate independently from God's people. Let me say that again. There's a great danger when we separate and operate independently from God's people. This this text right here off the bat ought to remind us how important covenant community is to our spiritual walk. Here's a man who separates from Jacob, who has dealt personally with Yahweh, dealt personally with God, separates from him, separates from his brothers, separates from any religious influence, kind of goes off and does his thing, and becomes influenced by the Canaanite people in their culture. This is a reminder to us that, that the covenant community, and for us, that's here, right here within this church, that the community that we experience here, the community that we experience maybe with other close believers that aren't part of this church, it's so important to our spiritual walk. 
the wisdom that can be gleaned from inside these walls with these people ought to be viewed as, as, as high priority for us in our own walk and in the decision-making um, of our walk. And here, you know, I'm, I'm imagining that Hira's the one who's recommending the daughter of Shua to be the, the wife of Judah here. He's, he's got to be asking him, dialoguing with him a little bit. Hey, what do you think? I'm thinking about marrying her. He's seeking guidance and wisdom from somebody outside the covenant community. Um, and, and that ought to be a reminder to us that when we're making big decisions and, and, and seeking guidance and wisdom, that it starts first with the covenant community, that we ought to value and prioritize the wisdom that comes from those that we're seeking to do spiritual life with um, to help in guiding our decision-making processes. Not only does he turn to a Canaanite for influence, he turns to a Canaanite for intimacy. The Canaanite woman that he marries comes from the same group of people that caused bitterness when Esau chose to marry into this nation. All right? Remember it said that it caused great bitterness for Isaac, caused great bitterness for Rebekah when Esau chose to marry a Canaanite woman. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act that Isaac and, and Jacob were forbidden to do. Right? Abraham says, I don't want my son marrying a Canaanite woman. All right? Uh, Rebecca comes to uh, Isaac and says, I don't want my son marrying a Canaanite woman. So there was this, there was this known uh, alarm within the family that, hey, this is, this is probably not going to turn out good if you choose to do this. Esau did it. Everybody else has, has really strove not to do it. Judah falls right into it. Um, and, there, and there's no real communication with home about this decision from the text. Um, he chooses to seek intimacy from a Canaanite woman. Judah fails in his friendship, but secondly, he also fails in his leadership. With the intimacy with the Canaanite woman comes more leadership opportunity as he becomes not just a husband, but a dad. He begins to have children with this woman. Three specifically are mentioned here, uh, Ur and Onan and Shelah. God gives him the opportunity to lead this family. And there's responsibilities that uh, that Judah has here. And, and I want to draw your attention to James chapter 4 because I think the, the concept in James chapter 4 is really the, the defining aspect of the sin that we see in this next section. In James chapter 4, verse 17, James says that um, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Okay, so, so James reminds us that sin is not just doing things that, that we're told not to do, that, that there's things that we know we're supposed to do, good things that we know God would have us to do, and when we fail to do those things, it becomes sin for us. And that's certainly what happens here in Genesis chapter 38. First of all, you've got seemingly, um, we're going to read a little bit into the text here, seemingly Judah's failure to discipline and for our kids, Judah didn't do his job as a dad. He fails to properly correct Ur. There seems to be some failure on Judah's part in correcting his son as a father should do. It says that um, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It seems Judah's oblivious to his son's sin and and doesn't seem to be active in the discipline of his sin, um, and he's killed for his wickedness. And, and one of the reasons that I would say he's failing in his leadership here 
is because here in, in the text, he basically blames Tamar for this. Rather than seeing and connecting his son's death with his wickedness, he basically says, I don't want to give Tamar to any of my sons anymore because they keep dying and, and basically labels her as the problem. So he seems oblivious or, or uh, unconcerned with the wickedness of his sons, and he fails to properly correct his son, Ur, who's killed for wickedness. We don't know what it is. Um, I told you this is the first mention of God killing somebody for, for their direct sin. Um, and it may be that Moses leaves out his wickedness just so we can be clear that sin leads to death. All kinds of sin leads to death. But there's not particular sins that leads to to God's judgment. He kills in the New Testament for, for lying, right? He kills Ananias and Sapphira for lying. He kills in the Old Testament for an individual who fails to respect the Ark of the Covenant properly. So he, so he kills for wickedness. He kills for, for rebellion and for sin, and he kills this individual for whatever he did. Uh, it, was a pro, it was a proper response. It was an appropriate response. But he also fails to properly instruct his son, Onan. He fails to properly instruct his son, Onan. Onan is killed for his lack of responsibility. As you read through the text here, you find, and we won't take the time to do it again, you, take, you, you read through the text and you find that he refuses to perform his obligations. He has obligations within this law that he's supposed to do something for his dead brother now. He's supposed to produce offspring for his brother, an heir, because his brother didn't. And some commentators speculate that, that Ur failed in his responsibilities as well and refused to give offspring to Tamar, potentially because dad forced him to marry her. We don't know. Um, but it would make sense that potentially his wickedness is tied to the same account because Onan and, and, and Ur are both killed here in this spot. But Onan has responsibilities with the law, and he's killed because he doesn't follow through with it. He basically enjoys the responsibility to the fullest for him without accepting the responsibilities that are supposed to come with it. So he, he takes Tamar and he, and he experiences self-gratification from Tamar, but doesn't follow through with the responsibilities of what he was supposed to do according to the law. And so he's killed for it. He's killed because he doesn't want to sacrifice more of his inheritance. So think about it. If, if Ur's dead and there's nobody to inherit, then you've got two sons left, right? You've got Onan and Shelah. And right now it would be split between the two of them with one taking greater precedent than the other, giving that, getting that double portion. So if Ur's dead and gone, well, then it's natural that Onan could assume that I'll get the double portion to then pass on to my family. But if I produce an offspring, then we're back to three with the other guy getting the double portion. So the motivation, you, you may think, well, what's one more kid? Like, why is he, why is he, why is he doing this? Why is it such a, an issue for him? Well, it's, a, it's an inheritance issue for him. To, to, to have a child with Tamar is to forfeit inheritance. And so he says, you know what? I'll give all the outward appearances that I'm doing the right thing, right? I'll take her and, and, and she'll be my wife. And, and yet within, within that relationship, I'm not gonna follow through with what I'm supposed to do. And due to, the, due to the privacy of the intimacy, nobody would have potentially ever known. You know, I'm gonna do all the outward actions. I'm, I'm, I'm the great big brother now that, that takes responsibility for Tamar but behind closed doors, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. Um, I think it's important to, to just make a quick note here that he's not judged for the, the method of birth control that's being used here. Um, there's nothing in the text that would allude to the fact that, that this needs to be overly emphasized for practical application. Um, and so I would be cautious and careful to, to use this and, and go further with the act being what is 
uh, resulting in his death. It has far more to do with his motive and his lack of embracing responsibility than the actual act that, that he performs here. So I don't think you should need to, need to overemphasize this um, as far as what is done. I think it's more the reasoning behind what he does. Number three, he fails to properly protect Tamar. We said that Tamar is treated as the dangerous one, even though his sons are judged for their sin, right? The text is very clear that this has nothing to do with Tamar and her wickedness potentially, because she's a Canaanite woman who's grown up separated from a knowledge of Yahweh, so she's not a God worshiper. Um, But it says in verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. It's sad to see that, um, that he treats Tamar as the problem here. And, and yet he's probably more responsible for their deaths than she is. Right? There's failures on his part as a leader within his family. He has separated his family from the covenant community which means they are not enjoying the benefits of growing up next to to their grandfather who has experienced God personally and and received the promises personally. They're completely separated from the covenant community, not by God's leading, but by Judah's leading. Hey, we're we're gonna get out of town and we're gonna separate from the family. He's led his family into this condition, much like Lot was guilty of his daughters and their seductiveness and their sins. He failed to properly train them and teach them. I think some of this falls back on Judah, that his, his sons are wicked because he's been an improper dad. He hasn't led his, his family like he should have, and, and yet he wants to blame Tamar here. Blames her and says, you know what, you're the problem. Go live with your dad until uh, Shayla is old enough to be given to you. Um, she's promised a future, but is instead banished. He does not intend to give his youngest son to her. We learn from the text as you continue to read that even as his son ages, he's not ever given to Tamar to be his, uh, to be her, uh, to be his wife. So Judah fails in his leadership. He, he knows the proper things to do, and he doesn't do them. Onan knows what he's supposed to do. James four seventeen knows what he's supposed to do, doesn't do it, and therefore it's sin, um, and God puts him to death for it. Number three, Judah fails in hardship. He fails in the midst of his hardship. For our kids, Judah tried to find happiness in the things of the world. So he separates Tamar from his family, believes that she's the, the curse that they've experienced, uh, and that's why his sons are dead. And it says in verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend, Hira, the Adalamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Tamar begins to try to work this situation out from her side of things because she realizes he's not ever going to allow me to marry his youngest son. He's blaming me for this. I don't have offspring. Um, and there may have been things communicated to Tamar, and a lot of commentators speculate that this is her fighting as best she knows how to be included in God's people because certainly there was some form of communication probably in the midst of these marriages that, hey, we're part of, we're part of God's people, the, the God that we understand to be God. 
Um, there's no indication that Judah's worshiping like the Canaanite people. So there may have been some form of understanding for her. Hey, there's a future here in this family. This family's been promised things by their God, and, and, and she may be trying to fight to get back in simply because she believes some of this stuff. Um, but she certainly is working behind the scenes and, and says, okay, I can take advantage of this situation now. Now that, that Judah's wife is dead, there's opportunity for me to seize control of this situation. Judah's wife dies, and he begins to seek happiness in the things of the world. Um, first off, he seeks comfort from the pleasures of the world. There's no evidence that he sought his dad or his brothers for comfort during this time. And this act of sheep shearing apparently was a, a pretty worldly, fleshly, self-gratification type experience. Like when, when they set aside to do this, this was kind of the, the boys going off to do this, that a lot of immoral things were prone to happen when you get a bunch of men together and they're working in, in this type of format. Um, they're separated from their families, separated from the public. And, and according to uh, some of the research done, that this was, a, this was an opportunity for you to kind of do what you wanted to do. And that there was a lot of evil that could be produced in this type of setting. So he basically flees to this environment, flees to this type of opportunity, goes with his friend Hira to seek additional comfort from losing his wife. Um, so he seeks comfort through the pleasures of the world, but secondly, he seeks comfort through a physical relationship with a woman. You know, as I was thinking and studying about this, Tamar obviously understood something about Judah's character because she assumes, if I dress up like this, I'll have him. So just kind of pause and think about that for a second. He obviously had demonstrated something in the past that convinced her, I can get him. I can get him. He'll fall prey to me. That ought to be a strong reminder to the, to the men in our church that, that uh, the things that we communicate and certainly the lines that we draw in our relationships with other women uh, ought to go far and above anything that Judah set as precedent here. Because Tamar says, you know what? I, I can do this. I can seize opportunity here and he will fall prey to me simply through my enticement. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, hesitancy to her as to whether this could work or not. And so she dresses herself up and poses herself as an opportunity for Judah, and he seeks comfort through a physical relationship with a woman. Uh, while he's refused Tamar access to the comfort of a man, he seizes the first opportunity presented to him. See, the hypocrisy doesn't just lie in the end of the story when he wants to judge her and fails to see that he's just as guilty as her. Even the hypocrisy here where she's lost two, two husbands now, and he's basically put her in a position where she cannot be provided for by another man. She cannot seek the comfort of another man until he says so. Basically, you can have all these things when I tell you that you can. And yet, as soon as he comes out of grieving for his wife, he is in control and able to seize that comfort on his own through the first woman that he encounters. As this scene plays out, um, he obviously wasn't planning to do this, and so he doesn't have cash on hand, per se. Um, and so there's an exchange here, a conversation as to how to verify that you're going to pay up. Basically, she wants a goat, probably suggesting something that she knows he doesn't have with him. Says, I want a goat, because she needs to be able to prove down the road that he's the father of the child that she's going to have, hopefully. And so she takes opportunity, and, and he, given in to his lust, and he's led by the flesh and not by the spirit here, is basically ready to surrender anything and everything to have what he wants. 
And so he gives over personal items to her. Says, uh, what will you give me that you may come in to me? Um, In verse 17, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. I think Moses stresses to us that Judah doesn't know what he's doing here. It says, come let me into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So while there's sin that takes place, this would be uh, far more sinful if he was aware of the situation potentially. And so Moses is clear to indicate to us that he doesn't know that this is his daughter-in-law. But he leaves behind personal items. Um, some commentators said that um, this is basically like him handing over his driver's license and his social security number as collateral. Um, and the embarrassing part that comes up later is that it would be like losing your credit card in a gentleman's club. Everybody knows you were there, right? Everybody knows what your intent was there. And so for her to have these personal items, when he's thinking straight, he probably doesn't surrender this stuff. But when he's not thinking straight, he hands over these personal items and now She has the collateral she needs down the road. She makes all this effort to get his personal items. He makes no effort to know who she is. Kind of uh, stresses again the the aspect of him being led by his flesh only. What's sad about this is that he shows more obligation to her as a prostitute than he does her as his daughter-in-law, right? Think about that. He goes to great lengths to try to pay up. Like he wants to make things right after this is all said and done and, and tries to find her and wants to provide back for her what he owes her. He owes his daughter-in-law, right? He owes his daughter-in-law another son and yet he's more willing and feels more responsibility to her as a prostitute versus as his daughter-in-law. Number three, he seeks to condemn another for the very thing that he has done. He jumps at the chance to rid himself of responsibility to Tamar as soon as it's found out that she's pregnant. It says, um, verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah seemingly has really wants no responsibility for this girl. Um, he's banished her as much as he can. There's still the idea that Sheila's owed to her and maybe he's not even able to really go forward and get married like Judah wants him to because this is still kind of hanging over the situation well as soon as he thinks that she's done something wrong he's ready to to kill her let's get let's get rid of her let's this is this is the opportunity I've been waiting for let's dispose of her and remove her influence from our family he jumps at the chance to rid himself of her he has quick judgment there's no investigation here there's no questioning here there's no trying to understand the situation quick judgment, and extreme punishment. Most of the time you would talk about stoning here. He jumps straight to burning her alive. And this was typically reserved for some of the greatest offenses. And and, and it kind of shows a little bit of his character here too. Quick judgment um, and and extreme punishment that he wants to, to give to her. And then he doesn't apply the same standard to himself when he realizes his own sin and failure. Says that as he makes this pronouncement against her says um, as she was being brought out she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong I am pregnant and she said please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff then Judah identified them and said she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila and he did not know her again Judah fails in his in his hardship 
in his grieving, he gives over to the flesh and then wants to pronounce quick judgment on the one who was more innocent than he in the situation. It says, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out and with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Last point that we'll make today, number four, God succeeds in keeping his gracious promises. For our kids, God keeps his promises despite Judah's sin. God succeeds in keeping his gracious promises. Why is this story in here? Like, why include this story here in Genesis chapter 38? I want to give you a couple of ways that I believe God succeeds in keeping his gracious promises and why this story is given to us here in Genesis chapter 38. The story shows that, first of all, God preserves the line regardless of how his people act. God preserves the line regardless of how his people act. The line of Judah, and thus the Messianic line, will be preserved. No matter how much they try to mess it up. Right? God made promises to Abraham. This is going to happen, and there's going to be one that comes from you. The same promise made to Adam and Eve. There's going to be one that comes who is going to defeat sin and death, who's going to make all things right. And no matter how much you try to mess it up, it's not going to stop it from happening. So you've got the enemy who's actively attacking and trying to stop this plan from happening. And then you've got sinful people who are being brought into it, but are still sinful people that mess up. And God says, none of you can stop this from happening. None of you can stop this. It doesn't matter how much you mess up. It doesn't matter how much the enemy tries to stop this. It will not be stopped. The line will be preserved. This is God protecting Judah from being swallowed up by Canaan. Remember, we've talked, there's been several instances now where the Israelites could have easily just been consumed into another nation. God says, I'm calling you out to make you your separate nation There's time and time again the opportunity for them to just be swallowed up and absorbed and never heard from again. That could have easily happened here. Judah marries into the Canaanite culture. His kids are being given over to the Canaanite culture. And this could be the last that we hear of the Israelite people. And yet God preserves them and will not allow Judah's family to be extinguished. This also helps us to better understand why Egypt is necessary. Egypt is necessary so that Israel doesn't get absorbed by Canaan. It's probably why it was so important that in Genesis 46, 34, we're told that the Egyptians hate shepherds. In fact, Joseph says, be sure to emphasize that you're a shepherd so that they'll put you away from them in Goshen. And it's there in that incubator that God allows Israel to rise up and become this great nation, right? The Egyptians don't say, wow, like we've gotten big really fast. Where'd all the extra people come from? Oh, they're Israelites that have married in with us. No, right? Pharaoh looks out and says, there's a large people group out there that is not us that could easily defeat us. This is part of why Egypt becomes necessary for 400 years because if left to themselves, the Israelites would have married into all these nations and been gone and you never would have heard from him again, and the Messiah doesn't come as promised. But God says, you know what? We're gonna save you out of this, 
And God even shows that if I don't do this, you'd go your wayward way and and wander off into Canaan. I'm going to pull you out, even in your miss-ups, and and I'm going to put you into Egypt so that this doesn't happen. This is God's grace. This is God's promises coming forth, even when mankind is trying to mess it up. That's one reason I think this story is included for us. Number two, anyone can fall into sin. Anyone can fall into sin. This story rebukes any uh, presumption that we might have or any pride that we might have that someone is above falling. This This ought to stand up and scream in our face that anybody is capable of any sin. We could take a show of hands. How many of you know somebody in full-time ministry at some point from your family's perspective that's affected your family? How many of you know somebody in full-time ministry that has fallen prey to some type of sexual sin? We could all raise our hands to that, right? We could all raise our hands and we would all probably say too, we never would have expected it from that individual. This is Judah, one of of Jacob's sons who Jesus will be closely tied to, right? The lion of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, and it's a man who makes some poor choices and decisions with his life. And it should scream in our face that anybody can fall into sin. That, that we can't say, well, you know what? I can hang on to my bitterness and I can handle it and it won't turn into something more than that. We can't presume that we're not guilty of seeing our bitterness lead to hatred that would potentially lead to murder. We say, well, wow, that, is, that is so far from how I feel right now. And yet that's the pattern that scripture says. If you continue to hang on to sin, back to our summary sentence, if you continue to hang on to sin, it leads to more sin. Judah is not confessing sin here. He hasn't dealt with the situation with his brother. And now he's in all kinds of sins that maybe he would have never dreamed that he would have been a part of. When you hang on to sin, you sear your conscience and you, and you resist the Holy Spirit and it just opens up the door for more sin. And this ought to stand in our face and say, nobody's exempt that if you follow this pattern of clinging to sin, it leads to hurt, it leads to pain, it leads to more sin. I think this is a great story for us to reflect upon as a reminder that anyone can fall into sin. But then number three, everyone can receive God's grace. Not only should it rebuke the the pride and the presumption that nobody or that somebody could be above falling, it also should rebuke any despair that we have about a great sin that we may have committed. You have Tamar being grafted into the Messianic line, according to the New Testament. She stands as one of of, of four other women, right, if you include Mary in that. There's women that are mentioned in Jesus' line, and that's not common. But you have Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Bathsheba, right? Like you have these women, you have Ruth, and they all come from different nations, right? You have Ruth, who, um, who's from Moab. You have Bathsheba, who's uh, most likely a Hittite because she's married to a Hittite. You've got, uh, you've got Tamar, who's a Canaanite. You have Rahab, who's from Jericho. These are all women that, that had no business being included in this. And yet these are all women who get to see the fulfillment of the promise that you will be a blessing to all nations. And I think as the genealogy is preserved and the genealogy is communicated, these four women stand as lights in that line that say, hey, the gospel's for anybody. The gospel's for everybody. doesn't matter what, what sins have been committed. God's, God's grace is far greater than our sin. Everyone can receive God's grace according to this story. There's hope for all the Gentile nations. So you have this big picture nations being saved and and women like Tamar who don't know Yahweh and being introduced to Yahweh and being grafted in. But it also 
uh, reminds us that there is hope for the greatest sinners. Because you have Judah here, and up to this point, you're thinking, not a good dude, like not the kind of guy that you want to be associated with. And yet Jesus attaches himself to that name, the Lion of Judah. And then if you jump ahead to Revelation chapter 21, uh, in verse 12, talking about the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place where we'll be with Jesus, it says it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Judah's name is written in heaven. It's written on the, on the, um, the construction in heaven. Right? Here's a guy whose sin, from our standards, would say, he's not getting in. He's not going to heaven. And yet, heaven in Revelation esteems his name and says his name's written there. And it's certainly not written for his righteousness. Right? He says, Tamar, you're a Canaanite woman. You're more righteous than me. The way you've handled this situation, you did a better job than me. And yet heaven echoes this idea that that Judah's name is written in heaven, that the lion of Judah has come to save us. And it's a reminder to us that the greatest sinners can be saved. And our greatest sins individually, even after becoming Christians, can be forgiven, that they don't have to define us. There's hope here in in this story, hope that we can be forgiven by a God who keeps his promises. And then lastly, number four, Sinners don't mess up God's plan. They are part of his plan. Sinners don't mess up God's plan. They are part of his plan. Judah's failure results in David's ancestor. Right? Perez, who's born here to Tamar, he's the ancestor of King David. He's the ancestor of Jesus Christ who comes in human form. God's grace can even be seen here in the fact that he gives back to Judah the two sons that were taken to him, taken from him, right? He loses Ur, he loses Onan, and yet Tamar bears twins back. And so now he's back to having three sons. He's the father of these two kids. He gets a, he gets a do-over. He gets, he gets uh, God's grace shown to him despite his failures in the past. And God uses wickedness for his purposes. We're going to talk more about this in our C groups this week, but in Acts chapter 4, lest we ever think that God simply reacts to sin. Instead, he uses sinful people. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, talking about God's hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod and Pilate and these guys, they're just just simply following through with God's grand plan. God's using their sin. He's using their wickedness for his great purposes. They don't mess it up. They're just part of it. They're just part of it. So our application for today, Going back to our summary sentence, the longer we fail to deal with our sin, the more we fall into additional sin. But we serve a God who is capable of rescuing us from the greatest of sins. Right? Judah's character is flawed in this story. He hung on to sin. It led to more sin and more sin and more sin. But God's capable of forgiving us of the greatest of sins. So the application is, in order to persevere, we have to learn from this chapter. We have to learn that we must remember that we are capable of committing any sin, but that God is able to rescue us from every sin. 
right? So we talk about persevering in the faith and making it to the end. That begins with us realizing I'm capable of any sin possible out there. If I don't deal with sin the way that God's told me to, I'm capable of of falling into this. But I have to also be reminded that I'm able to be rescued from every sin. And what that means is, is that I must take every necessary step to fight sin. If I'm capable of it, I need to fight against it. And I should avoid despair when I stumble into it. All right, so we want to guard against feeling like, oh, this gives me a license to sin. It doesn't. Right? God judges sin. So we certainly don't walk away from this chapter saying, oh, I should definitely follow in Judah's steps. Like, there's no consequences for my actions. No. Like, he lost two sons. Right? He experienced heartache and embarrassment. Like, his sin found itself out. And he had to deal with it, and he had to respond to it, and everybody probably became aware of the fact because he's got this big group of mob of people ready to burn this woman. He says, you know what? You're the one that did this. Oh, you're right. Like, you've got my stuff. You've got my identity. I gave it to you. And so the embarrassment, and so, so you certainly don't walk away from this saying, oh, if God forgives sins, then I should just be okay with sinning and know that he'll forgive me. That's not the case. But it does guard us and protect us from falling into such a state of despair that says God can't possibly still love me because of my sin that I've just committed. No, God rescues us from it. God forgives. God writes the names of people in heaven that have been saved out of some of the worst sins because it's not our righteousness that gets us there. It's the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray together. As we pray, I want you to to think and reflect upon why this story is included for us. That we serve a great God who preserves his promises regardless of how we act. And that it's necessary for us to deal with sin the way that God's called us to or else we're capable of more and more sin. Anybody can fall into sin according to this story. It's a reminder to us that everyone can receive God's grace no matter, no matter what sins you may be fighting and, and potentially having to confess that we can trust in God's forgiveness for those things and simply being encouraged that as sin and evil happens around us, that God uses those things as part of his plan. Father, we, we ask and pray as we're taking these few minutes now to pause and to reflect that you would draw attention to our minds any sins that need to be dealt with in our life. God, help us to realize that, that unconfessed sin, that sin that we hang on to, only opens the door for greater sins. And God, help us not to become so presumptuous or prideful to think that, that we can deal with it, we can handle it, and that it won't create more problems down the road. God, help us to yield to the truth of your word, especially in the context of what we've been talking about recently, that if there's bitterness that needs to be confessed, if there's issues that need to be reconciled, that we would seek to accomplish those things. If for no other reason, out of fear of what else we might be capable of if we hang on to those things. God, we're thankful that you're a God who is capable of working despite our failures. That you're a God who keeps his promises. God, we're thankful that you can save us and forgive us from the greatest of sins. God, I pray that as we wait upon Jesus to come back, that we would be faithful to confess, that we'd be faithful to fight, 
that we would use the covenant community that you've blessed us with to be a tool and an instrument to that perseverance. I pray that we would not separate ourselves as Judah was guilty of doing. That We wouldn't remove ourselves from the influence. God, I pray that we would seek to immerse ourselves in the influence of this covenant community. And I pray that even as we examine our calendars and our schedules, that priority would be putting ourselves and our family into contact as much as possible with believers. God, we thank you and praise you for who you are. Thank you and praise you for the love that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.